Hey, y'all. Welcome to part two of volume two of my three-volume series with Courtney Turner. It's basically about the Fabians, and that is just, uh, I would say, the most overarching name you can give the powers that be and the ideology that is driving the world into the ground right now. But it's not all Fabian, but that's that's how we started. We did the Milner-Fabian conspiracy in our volume one. This one is the Fabian roots of Friedrich Hayek, which is a founder who is a founder of the Austrian School of Economics. And that just, you know, I had to be ready for that, I had to deal with that. And the next one is going to be an introduction to and probably a pretty deep dive into the Tavistock Institute. So it's all good. This is part two of volume two. This is the one on the roots of libertarianism and the the possibility, and I would say the likelihood that, and I've been trying to crack this code for a while, that the, that the extremism coming from the left is meant to provoke a reaction. Some would say an overreaction, and I would just say a strong reaction from the right, which uh, is... She says, and I, and I think she's right, it's a setup, it's a provocation, and it has a purpose. So she's going to tell us about that in this part two. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear this commercial free, please sign up to Deep Dives Premium, which is uh, on iTunes right now under the Deep Dives with Monica Perez podcast. And that would help pay the bills. And if you, if you don't want to join premium, it's totally fine with me. Hope you don't mind the commercials and, uh, we will see you next time (laughs) for volume three, but this is part two of volume two with Courtney Turner. Christian nationalism. Christian nationalist movement. Yeah. And what can you define that? Am I I I just started to get an inkling of the Christian nationalist thing and that it's a weaponized thing. Yeah. So I think they're very much trying to weaponize it. I think they've kind of created it for the, the intentions of weaponization. And when you look actually in the book that we did, the uh, Milner Fabian conspiracy book, they, they kind of alluded to it. I don't think they used the term Christian nationalism, um, but that was kind of what they alluded to. And they had actually said that it was created by the Muslim Brotherhood. So, um, yeah. Which was a British intelligence operation. Behind, British intelligence behind that, exactly. <laughs> right. So, but I, I will just share my first, my personal experience and then what even like pointed my eyes in this direction at all. Um, I don't know, it was a year ago, two years ago now that everything's blending together. Uh, but it was, <laughs> I went to CPAC and at CPAC there was AFPAC. They had like, are you familiar with Nick Pointe's organization? It's called America First uh, uh, PAC you know, coalition. And, Which, uh, you know, is what the anti-World War II people were, American firsters, which were, oh, yeah. so then they were after the war, during the war, painted as Nazi sympathizers. Right. And I, some I, of them I, may have been, but like, it's a very loaded term. I know. And I yeah, didn't yeah. know that. I actually didn't know that history at the time, interestingly yeah. enough. But, uh, 
Yeah. So I, I thought, of course, America first, this sounds great. And like what a, their whole slogan, just, it sounded beautiful. And I was, I was totally bought in. My, my fiance was very patient with me. He, he kind of knew better, but he's like, kind of warning me. He's like, okay, you know, you're going to find out about the Groypers. And I'm like, a Groyper? What's a Groyper? Like, so I, I went. So I'll just share this. I went and it was, it was a disaster from the beginning. Like I had paid the tickets. They, they had no record of my, my payment. I kept showing to them. They actually ended up insisting I pay again in cash. They didn't give me the address. I was an hour late because, so there's all this just logistical, like, cluster. You know, it was just yeah. a mess. Um, but, and I don't know how much of that was legitimate, not legitimate. I That is a separate conversation, but it was really, really disorganized. And at least from my perspective, uh, my experience. But I go and I was, I was devastated. Like I actually cried because instantly I get there and it is blatantly anti-Semitic. And I'm not one who buys into this whole like because I actually think that that's another dialectical trap. It's like totally. That's what I worry about the Epstein thing. I'm like, they are right. Oh, on they're that. totally. It's on one hand, you have the sacred cow, right? You can't say anything negative about the Jews because they're the because of the Holocaust. And this is part of the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School. One of the things they did with their uh, identity uh, politics was that they created this uh, marriage. This uh, they tied Jews' identity to the Holocaust. And so they, that, that, so that they would perceive themselves as victims. This is not to say I'm not a Holocaust denier. I have my family is Jewish. Like you know, I don't. I believe it was real. <laughs> I think people were really hurt by it. You know, I'm not a, a supporter of the Holocaust in any way, shape, or form. But I don't think it's your whole identity. In fact, most of my family were not Holocaust survivors. My great grandmother uh, was a victim of pogroms way before the Holocaust. She watched her mother be sliced in half by the pogroms. Yeah. When she was seven years old. So the persecution is very real. It is not all the Holocaust. I don't think their whole identity should be wrapped in it, nor do I deny that it was real and that it was horrific. But that was something that was a propaganda tactic was to tie their identity to the Holocaust. So you can't say anything bad about them. Or on the other hand, they're responsible for every, you know, bad negative perpetration of you know all things in the world <laughs> the, you know the whole Jew conspiracy and they, by they making they, it I, too all inclusive it loses credibility for sure so instead of and same thing with like the Vatican I'm like look I want to know I want to know but then as soon as you go down that road it's like oh it's everything I'm like I don't think so but it could be I don't know but like then it's just too much it, yeah I, I exactly I mean I, because it's it is the Vatican so it can't just be Jews it can't just be the Queen of England, like it has to be. It has, it to, be has a combination. to be. Yeah, it has to be a combination. But there's also it's like what happened to humans being human. Like there are good Jews, there are bad Jews, there are good, you know, Catholics. Well, plus on bad. the ground, yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't possibly like you absolutely know people. You know people. You can look in the eye who are not in on it. Exactly, and even when you're looking at these institutions, it's like the world is so vast, and there's so many different. Uh, literal conspiracies that they couldn't have all, one couldn't have been responsible for all. You know, they could have worked together in collusion in some capacity. Well, that's why that ideology is so important. Yes. And I do think there is the shared ideology. 
I just mean any of these ideologies that we're talking about when we're talking about oh, Marx. Yeah. I'm just saying ideology but is did the you thing. Have a similar, I think they all have a similar through, through line. The ideology is shared. I just think there's nuances to each one. So you went and they... I went and it was blatantly anti-Semitic. And I thought just from a business perspective, that was very foolish because they're alienating. Of course, and it negates oh. all their other points. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but of course, I was also just really upset. Like, okay, oh, yeah. I don't support... I yeah. And uh, then it's dangerous it was for you too. Very. And it was a bunch of very, um, I don't know how to put it nicely, but it really was just like a bunch of insults. There were, it was mostly these young men who and were FBI handlers, I assume. Um, I mean, I don't know, but one could definitely make that speculation. But then I did some research and you know, he wasn't even like an organic creation. He was initially funded by uh, Michelle Malkin's husband of the, uh, right? Like, wasn't he a, a Rand Institute economics uh, guy? I don't know. Who is yeah. it? Yeah, Michelle Malkin, who is like a conservative pundit. But who are you saying was funded? The guy who established oh, it? Who started it. And then, of course, his, all of his like... Uh, you know, associates, right? You've got uh, Milo, Milo, who we know <laughs> was a federal informant, right? Um, then we have uh, the, the Ali Alexander guy who wasn't he convicted on like, like pedophile charges? <laughs> um, and then we have, uh, what, who else do we have? Of course, Ye, who's very kind of uh, suspicious. I mean, I kind of suspect he may be an MK Ultra victim. Yeah, that uh, would be. I think, yeah, I mean, that's Harley, like the, definitely the leading theory, the one, the theory that makes well, the most sense. I think sense. there's a lot of evidence to support it because of Harley Pasternak, who, uh, you know, was affiliated with the Canadian military for over 20 years. And then Harley's mentor, uh, who I'm going to totally blank in, on his name, but he was the one who actually introduced him to Hollywood. Um, and he had military ties. Um, he was like known as like the the, the doctor to the stars. Uh, I'm totally blanking his name, but I, I think there's a lot of evidence to indicate that with Ye. But either way, Ye is definitely suspicious. I mean, the the behavior was definitely curious. Well, yeah, it, just, it seems curious. Like it, it almost seems like you know drug induced or have not hypnosis yeah. induced. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And so, America First was very much that was the other thing that really, really disturbed me is that they were very much even in that conference that I went to vying for a theocracy and a Christian nation, a theocracy uh, based on Christianity. And I was like, that like violates everything our founding fathers. Yeah, you can't do that here because it's not, you have no right. Yeah, the First Amendment, that, that, that complete violation of the First Amendment. And most but we, it's already not a Christian nation. Like you can't, then you would be, and what do you mean by that anyway? Yeah. So that so that was my first experience with this Christian nationalist stuff and I was I was just very personally upset by it. Like I actually was very emotional. Um I remember I wrote an article about it. It was like Christian first, Christianity first, Christianity first is not synonymous with America first and that was really what they were arguing. And, uh, you know, I went through the founding fathers. Many of them were deists. They weren't even Christians and, you know, really they came here for to flee religious persecution because they saw what happened with the Church of England. They saw what happened with the Vatican. Hey, do you think there's any chance that the Church of England persecuted them on purpose to get them to colonize this vast land? Ooh. 
Good that one, right? Very <laughs> just, just a thought. I'm just putting that in your hopper. I'm sure it'll bounce it, around it'll, and you'll, yeah, you'll bubble something eventually. Perfectly. Yeah, I have not thought about that, but that's entirely, I wouldn't rule it, it out. It makes sense. It I does. Mean, it's a big place. Why, why would they chase everybody away? All these industrious. I wouldn't folks. rule it out. But so now it's become uh, like, much more intellectualized. So he's kind of, I feel like the popularization of this Christian Christian, and the he's targeting the younger generation, like Gen Z is very much his followers. Uh, so that was my exposure to it. But then I saw James Lindsay talking about it and the, he was addressing people like Wolf. I'm going to blank on his first name. To, I think, I want to say Christian Wolf. Um, but uh, he... Uh, let me write Christian. Mm. Oh, Stephen Wolf. That's his name. Um, and he wrote like almost a 500 page book on this. And it's so when you ask me what is Christian nationalism, apparently it has a very wide umbrella. And in the very in the loosest of terms, it's people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who will say, I'm a Christian nationalist. And by that, she means I'm a Christian and uh, <laughs> I support America. Um, but people like, Stephen Wolf are not talking about that. They're, they wrote almost 500 pages articulating what he thinks it means. And his, I, I, some of these people's theories, I think, are really dangerous because it really does look like it is moving towards theocratic uh, type of principles. And it's arguing that, you know, a nation is a, a, a place and people, uh, which I actually don't agree. I think, you know, especially America, it's really an idea. It's a concept. And uh, that's why our constitution was so unique is because it was pre predicated on this experiment of self-governance. That's, uh, that's not dictated by a place. That's not about the, the borders of America, right? Before we had the 50 states that we had, we still had this idea of America being what we think of America today, right? It was still this idea of self-governance. And, you know, I i mean, certainly it's evolved since we had the 13 colonies. I think it, I, and I'm just off the cuffing here, but I feel like it was built to accommodate both ideas that it's a nation, our culture, mm -hmm. people, whatever is mm -hmm. an ideo ideology. It's a collection of values above all, in my opinion, that you can't, this is another thing from Christopher Dawson, that mm -hmm. you actually, and I think MacArthur said the same thing, you can't have a uh, a growing culture that works at cross purposes internally. I think Oswald Spengler said you can't have uh, eclectic architecture. That is the sign right. of a of a civilization in decline, because you're not you don't have the same like he because he thought everything was math from what I gather yeah. and. Yeah. Based you on sacred geometry, yeah, yeah, architecture is math. So if you if you don't if you don't understand it in the same way, and but I mean, Christopher Dawson's was much better. It's like if you have if one group in society is working towards a collectivist goal with Sharia law, and another group is working for, you know, neoliberal whatever, and another group is working for Christian theocracy, you're you do not have a culture or civilization like it's not working. So I think what they were trying to do was allow for. Another that other thing I was talking about, Christopher Dawson, is that these different places are regionally and economically very different, which is why I think we had the Civil War in the first place. Was that that when you have a sparsely populated agrarian society that needs to sell its stuff and 
And you have another group that has the factories that wants to buy that stuff cheap and you're selling it to, you know, another country that's also has the factories like Britain. All of a sudden, you know, you could be oppressed and exploited by them. That's why we have the electoral college. That's why you have, like, I think it was quite a genius way of trying to say, okay, if you're in a different region, if you have a different economic or geographical thing, you are entitled to different laws, but we can agree on just a couple of things. One is free trade and the other is some, you know, basic restraints on this government. So I feel like you can have, it's meant to give us both. I feel like there's so much to unpack in what you just said. Sorry. Um, <laughs> there, there's so much there. Um, so is it so, all wrong in your opinion? Did no, I, just I don't think they're no, no, no. I, I think there's a lot of validity, validity to it, but there's just also, I, I think there was also a lot of, um, a lot of things that were, uh, early American propaganda. Yeah. Well, exploited. Yeah. So like the, the first thing comes to mind, uh, like free trade, for instance, uh, and Dr. John Coleman talks about, and there are several people who've written about the Civil War. Yes. Oh, I know. Coleman got me thinking about right? trade and immigration. Yeah. That, that was the first time I was like. Free trade was really just a way to create these, uh, to export. Oh, it's mercantilism. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't mean free trade. I meant okay. that we were trading with each other across borders. Across you know, the commerce clause. Or across the nation. I was just talking about Commerce Clause within okay. that the federal government of the United States was expressly designed to create a framework within which you could yeah. have cross-border trade, which actually doesn't deny what Coleman was saying because no, no, it's no, within, no. they actually had to create a political structure solely for the purpose of allowing free trade, which is what the argument was for the for the European Union, contrary to which Hayek said. I was just going to say, it's contrary to what Hayek says, but it's interesting because he kind of uses a lot of, he uses a lot of the principles that argue for federalism uh, for to advocate for this uh, supranational entity. But I, I would argue that it doesn't work when you're talking about supranational for the same reason that you're bringing up, because you have these uh, regional and cultural differences that work for individual areas. And yeah, it helps to have some sort of a centralized within a nation that is, you know, working together because it's part of one and have some sort of central body to help uh, adjudicate. Right. There was a body to adjudicate, which is really the only purpose of it, in my opinion, and not to decide that Congress is doing its job. Does Congress decide that the court is doing its job? Maybe. I don't know. But no. <laughs> um there were so many, uh, I actually went through, like, there were so many different little things that uh, stuck out for me. First one I pointed out was, uh, you know, kind of he begins with saying, there's little hope of international order, lasting peace, and so long as every country is free to employ whatever measure it thinks is desirable in its own immediate interest, however damaging it may be to, to others, leaves little needs little emphasis now. Um, and he goes on to say the many kinds of economic planning are indeed practical. If only if the planning authority can effectively shut out all extraneous influences. The result of such planning is therefore inevitably the piling up of restrictions on the movement of men and goods. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, what was interesting to me about like, I mean, he kind of says that in many, he says that many times in different ways throughout this whole chapter. And then he contradicts himself a few times. Yeah. but. Well, the way I perceived the contradiction was not so much 
I know there are people who argue that those contradictory statements mean that he doesn't really believe this. But what I saw, it was more that we're going to have trouble with making this viable. It's To me, the analogy would be in uh, current times would be kind of like when you've all know Harari says how we're going to have to deal with the moral implications of this and how people are going to accept, uh, you know, trading their freedom. Right. He says this all the time. That's what he's saying. That's what disturbs me a lot because he's not saying there's anything exactly. wrong with it. He's saying people won't accept it. He says it over and exactly. over again. And now they do That's accept ex- exactly. it. Exactly. It, it disturbed me very much. That and I just, when me. I look through <laughs> this and, and knowing the origins of the Fabian socialist, um, to me, this was just like, and of course, you know, people, he was influenced by uh, originally it was a uh, Weiser. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It might be Weiser, but. Um, who was definitely Mm -hmm. a Fabian. He was his mentor. And then he kind of rejected him and became a fan of Mises, uh, who I would argue is a little bit more, uh, you know, little L-minded, libertarian-minded, and definitely advocates, I think, in some ways more for individualism. But I, I think ultimately the foundations and his, it's kind of, it's really hard unless you have a complete paradigm shift to overthrow your entire worldview and his entire worldview in, and his funding is all stemming yeah. from Fabian socialists. Yeah. The way he talks about federalism, he says the form of international government under which certain strictly defined powers are transferred to an international authority, while in all other respects, the individual countries remain responsible for their internal affairs is of course that of federation. So, uh, it's, it says uh, it is the only form of association of different peoples which will create an international order without putting an undue strain on their legitimate desire, not right, for independence. And because he opens this chapter with an Acton quote, and Acton, Acton, Lord Acton was thought that uh, Lincoln was an inside job. He's like, you guys are fighting for the very concept of of you know a republic of federalism of being able to of self governance of all that stuff and it's very clear by now by 18, 1944 that it doesn't work that it's not going to work that it's a stepping stone yes. to an economic union and so uh, there's no way Hayek didn't so know Marx exactly act- what he was asking I, for. I would agree and Marx in my opinion Lincoln uh for the civil war Karl Marx thanked him, uh, wrote like a, a like personal letter to him. Um, and then what was the other thing I was going to say uh, about Lincoln? Oh, people forget about his, I think it was his uh, secretary of state who stabbed like 17 or 18 times before Lincoln was assassinated. So I very much think this is like an inside job. I mean, I do encourage people to read this last chapter of Hayek. I mean, you don't have to throw Mises under the bus or all that. And it is possible that Hayek was there to taint Mises, that it is possible, I'd have to look at this timeline, that Mises came up with a good idea, well-meant, and that they they sent Hayek, Hayek into hijacket. <laughs> you can call him hijack. But uh, he just was there for that purpose. So I don't know, but, uh, I was always, I was never actually a huge right. fan of Hayek. I was a fan of Mises and I remember reading Hayek like, and, and noticing a little weird, you know, well, of course we need a safety net. And I remember thinking like, if you, if you allow for a safety net, your entire 
idea of a libertarian society absolutely crumbles because all of a sudden you're redistributing wealth, which you cannot do without force. Over and over again, he says you're going to have to do this by force and coercion, and he doesn't seem opposed to it. Yeah. But that's just international. But any other stuff, he just he does stipulate things that clearly require force. So it was Seward, was his uh, his Secretary of State, and he was stabbed like something like seventeen or eighteen times. It was brutally stabbed. Here, it doesn't say how many times, but I remember hearing it was like seventeen or eighteen times. Oh, that I think it was definitely an inside job. I mean, they were. Oh no, I mean, I mean that Lincoln was the assassin yeah. of the U.S. Yeah, that he was the inside job. Right. And so what, Seward, they they you're saying they tried to take him out? Yeah. So I I I think that okay. I think that corroborates the point. Like I think that is because they were trying to take them all out. Well, whoever knew. Well, I would just to clarify what I'm talking about here, I think Lincoln was there to change the nature of the union. And that in the end, he was you can only take somebody like that so far, like JFK or Ronald Reagan. Like they can serve your purpose, but then at a certain point, their own like integrity, their own right. man, like what they really meant in the first place starts to like matter. And you're like, oh, sorry, we actually, this was just a stepping stone to a totally different thing. You you thought we were going to be restrained about this, but we're not. So that's why they had to kill him so that the reconstruction mm, interesting. would be brutal. I, that's entirely possible. I, they would, but they yeah. would have to take the other guy out too because they were of a of a mind, and that's how come they got people in the north to think it was okay to have this war, and that in order for them to feel like they were telling the truth, they would have had right. to keep their principles going, but they couldn't because the powers that were behind it, I think, were meant to do what, what they, did. they did. I, which, you know, I, I was part of uh, when I was in LA. It was a group called uh, FOA Friends of Abe. So you know, yeah. The political right tends to yeah. love Lincoln. They, you know, kind of... Uh, That's when I didn't like Hillsdale College anymore. They put a statue up of Lincoln. I have very interesting things to tell you about Hillsdale, and I actually think Hillsdale has either been co-opted or was intentionally designed to be controlled opposition. I really don't know which one. Well, if they didn't invent it, somebody else would. It's like, I, and this I'll just really... If we haven't lost absolutely everybody already, I will say if Assange isn't... right. A honeypot. Where's the honeypot? Where's well, I, the I honey do pot? think they, they are at least a honeypot now. Whether or not they, they intended to be from the inception, I don't right. know. But uh, Lincoln, I was going to say, uh, so I always would get so upset because they revere Lincoln. I'm like, he's the one who suspended habeas corpus. Like he literally, like we talk about martial law. Like he was literally the guy that did that. The Insurrection Act of, of 1907, right? Yeah, I mean, he forcefully... Uh, retained a union of people that didn't want to be there. I mean, you just, you can't do that. Even if he wanted to liberate right. slaves, if that was really no. the point, no, but he, he didn't. didn't liberate slaves yeah. in the so, union. I don't, I, I guess that, that could be very possible that he was a, he was a pawn for them. And then he, he didn't go along with the plan entirely. And so they had to take him out. That's, that's entirely possible. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened with JFK. Yes. Totally. And, and kind of Reagan too, but you know, maybe this is another version of what I've noticed is that like, at least for the three revolutions that I can think of, um, American, French and Russian, like within 10 years, they were totally hijacked by a, 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 a force that right, was not. Because the, the monopoly capitalists funded them. Yes, but but with deception, you know, use the the worker, whatever the laborer, whatever the women in France. We've got to beware false hope. Beware yeah. false hope. So there has to be truth. 
It's the Tavistock Stones thing that has to be truth. There has to be good, or you absolutely cannot get that change affected. Well, that's why they always go after the the most true, the most beautiful things first. I mean, I think that's part of why they attack, like just just geographically, if you think about why they attack California so hard. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful. Oh, I've been wondering because it's it's definitely under attack. So keep going with your Hayek highlight. Yeah, where was I going with all of that? It is one of the most fatal illusions that by substituting negotiations between states or organized groups for competition for markets or raw materials, internal friction would be reduced. I know. I was like, but it's, but it is, but it is. And he's like, look at the Nazis. I'm like, but that was a political organization that was, that was, was trying to regain territory that had German speaking people on it. It was a political thing. Yes. And so that that struck me about that. When when you brought that, I meant to address that when you brought it up in the beginning. That's a technique that I think was really emerging at that time. I remember it with McCarthyism. Like, they'll say something that's not true and act like it's true. And then in history, you're like, oh, everybody must have thought that was true. Well, not only that, but they'll... Um, so, like, I, what it made me think of is kind of like, a, you know, like a, the, the, the fascist versus the communist, right? So they're... They're they're competing for power, and like the, that's the whole thing with Hitler that he's a fascist. He really wasn't a fascist. He was a Marxist. He's definitely it's the National Socialist Worker, Workers Party, right? That's what the Nazis were. Yeah, he had a he had that that coin exactly. that was worth one hour of labor. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I, I'm not down with one hour. I, I don't want the one but hour labor either. coin <laughs> because I don't. My assignment might be to clean the toilets, which actually I would probably not mind as much as being in the like uh, baby care. But I'm just saying, like, if everybody's getting paid the same and you get the worst job, it's slavery. That's but that's I think they, they pit these uh, concepts against each other. Uh, be, but really, what it is is a competition between men. It's a, a like really, it's Hitler and Stalin. It wasn't so much a uh, a difference of ideology. It was a it was two men competing for power, world world domination, right? I, I think that's really what it was. So they but they pit it as. It's fascism, like that you know that they they can't lump him in with Mussolini, and you know there there were fascist components to uh, the Nazi regime, of course, right? But all roads all roads lead to totalitarianism. It, it just it does kind of remind me of the nine eleven thing, where he's just taking an example of something that's really bad right now and saying that's why we have to do all these other things because that would have solved the problem. But I think that's what I think that's the, the theme. That's what they always do. Um, and these Fabian socialists, you know, uh, when you look at Tavistock, I, I kind of see it as the conversion convergence of these the Frankfurt School uh, philosophers and the Fabian socialists, and you know, one seem, is much more of like the tactical arm. You could argue they both have tactical arms, but I think Fabians are much more tactical uh, than the Frankfurt School. And the whole the whole point is to reshape the world, right? And for themselves, I had, I mean, you have to put this part in, or it just doesn't make sense for themselves, the technocrats or whatever, to have control. And I believe. I believe if you want to look back on the whole Illuminati phenomenon, it was about not having access to the monarchy, that a hereditary monarchy was not an, it was not accessible to the bourgeois class or whatever it was, whoever was behind it, that that's really what it comes from, is to be able to get power because you're, and I, Robert Reich, that the guy, he's a, like a professor, he was in the Clinton administration, I think, but 
He just reminds me of this, how I understood these guys think because they're the, the literally smartest guys in right. the room, like highest IQ guys in the room, that they should be the most revered. They should be the most powerful. And it annoys them that industrious inventors and entrepreneurs actually ha- get the money. That's what I think is at the heart of their their want their wish to. Oh, that's interesting. The world. I I do think there is that. I mean, that's like essentially that's kind of psych psychopathy. Yeah, I mean, because I do great on standardized tests, but I wouldn't be able to run a big company. I just would absolutely right. not be able to do it, or even right. start one. Sure, you know, it's just a different skill set, and uh, but I can like embarrass someone with like math sure. skills who's not good at math, you know, and that doesn't mean. So why do I? Why am I sitting like way further back at the big table? You know, why is that? You can see, I can out. How can I? How can I get the better of that guy? Well, intellectual gymnastics and a long-term plan, like I will do it. It is, yeah. yes. I- well, yeah, and it's the exploitation of, uh, which is exactly what Marx's theory is all about, right? And you would never run out of people who want to drive that. It right. doesn't have to be inherited. It doesn't have to be an intergenerational plot. You're never, you have, by by capturing the institutions, you have made yep. a self-perpetuating machine of ideologues in search of power who find themselves to be superior, but not in control. Well, That's yeah, what academia is what for. Academia is- <laughs> <laughs> and politics and the media, like all of those things. It's like a funny thing I thought a long time ago. It's like, none of them does anything. There's no real-time feedback to them to know they're wrong. Right. But they tell you how to think. Yes. Yes. But they don't produce anything. They don't there's no, there is no material feedback mechanism there. Like if you, if you build a tire that goes flat, you're out of business. Their tires are flat, but they are still in business because they're in business of selling flat tires. Well, I mean, this was the whole education system. I mean, well, that's exactly, and it's, in, it is designed to, yes. I, I think what you're really describing is that they're, they're, they're trying to create yes. a perpetual uh, neo-feudalistic society. Of technocrats, well, of yeah, they want well, they want the technocracy to rule. So I think, it, but I think it's just another iteration because they want to return to the neo to the feudal order, but it's neo feudalism yes, because it's now going to be run by technocracy, not just the technic- technocrats, but by AI and technology. Um, and yeah, when you're talking about like the, the the resentment of somebody who is a divergent, that's essentially what you're saying, and. Uh, that of course that's true. That's exactly where we got the Prussian model of education. When they literally said that they want because they lost the Battle of Jena in 1807. This was during the Napoleonic Wars, and they realized that the reason they lost the battle was because the soldiers rebelled, and the reason they rebelled was because they were critical thinkers. And so they created this three-tier system to create, and they literally said this: they wanted to create mindless, obedient soldiers. I have to say. The one thing, like I had that Hayek thing, I'm like, but a safety net will ruin everything. So I had the same thing with Adam Smith. And he was like, we yep. need to have public education because of the soldiers. And I was like, but once you have public education, yeah. <laughs> that ruins everything. <laughs> like, so this is my point. Like, I don't mean to point, like, it's not that there's no original thought or that they, or to discredit everything they've said. It's not that everything they said is false. It's that it's germinating from this mindset of, you know, similar ideology. In this case, it happens to be uh, the Fabians, which I think are, you know, really kind of a, uh, 
Uh, I mean, I think they're Gnostic and they're in many ways psychopathic, but... I mean, even if Hayek... So I agree, like what we're talking about is a a march towards a goal and you can use a variety of tactics to do that and the tactics are different ideologies that end up at the same place. And you can see it all the time when you hear CNN and Fox justifying yeah. bombing Syria. One is doing it for the beautiful little babies and the other one is doing it to, you know, preserve American freedom. You know, it's just, but they both, they both happen to have the same solution. And it could be argued that they're, they're trying to show you the two wings of the same bird because they're pointing toward the same. It's just, we're going to give you different flavors, but we're ultimately, we're going to yes. win in the end. And this is the same thing as the revolutions you're talking about, right? They, the whole point of that book, Sutton's book that, uh, you know, the skull and bones, the order of skull and bones was really to show you that either way they win because they fund both sides. Yeah. And that's what Quigley said too. But I will say with Hayek, him, him absolutely advocating hard after he said, so this is how I thought about it. He sets up 14 chapters of right. why he loves individual liberty. And then right. he says, now that you know I'm a good guy, there's this one other thing I wanted to tell you about. Now, just, just bear with me. You know, we have to have an international political body. Call it, I don't have to call it a world government, but it does need to have force and it needs to be able to tell everybody what to do. But there is absolutely no way that he does not know that even if he thinks that's the only way to affect this kind of whatever world that he's talking about, even if he were to say, yeah, but I, I don't want a Fabian world government, you're wrong about that. I want a world government that's like something you would like. That's basically all he's saying. It's like, it has to be something you would like. But I'm saying you can't think for one second that if you establish a world government, it isn't going to be hijacked by the, it's like Kosa's theorem. The highest and best use of any single thing is going to end up in the hands of who can, or that anything will end up in the hands of those who can use it to the highest and best use. It's going to end up in the hands of totalitarian technocrats. <laughs> like that's what it's going to do because that's what it's set up to do. And he can't think that it's not going to. So it's a setup. <laughs> yeah, you, you got me. He's a jerk. Well, I don't know. I, I will, in his defense, say that he probably <laughs> genuinely believes that this is the best solution. Um, I don't agree with him. And uh, I think he probably also believes that he's going to be part of this ruling class. And so therefore, it's going to be work out beautifully for him. I mean, that's what they say about the Strauss thing, which I really never dug into, except for that. There's, you know, a lot of quiet parts they don't say out loud. And he's not saying that. And and another thing is that I think Rothbard revealed is that when with Keynes and that whole crowd, how do you get all the economists in the world to get on board with Keynesian economics? Well, it's the only form of economics that will give them all a job. Yeah. <laughs> so they all get a job. So no, it's almost impossible for an economist right, not right. to believe in economics, right? <laughs> And you don't really need anyone to walk around saying that just works automatically. You know, <laughs> like you just don't need you don't need more than one guy to say that. I feel like yeah, it doesn't. Really, you can say because you're you're like well, you know, it's it's going to be the variation that you like. But I think ultimately you're just giving somebody a different flavor. To me, it reminds me of when uh, like what did Larry Fink do recently? He realized that ESG was not very popular, and he's like, okay, we're going to call it like a. Yeah, capitalism. You're going to change the name. <laughs> right. So I've got to ask, you know, what, where does this bring you 
now when you think about libertarians, like, you know, I, I don't know, like I'm hoping that just my um, embracing of agorism is is enough for me to sleep at night and not feel like I have a, an existential crisis in my ideology. But, you know, libertarianism, it, I, you know, classical liberalism, it's it's hard for me to let that go. And what's the alternative? And what do you think is, you know, do you think that we've all been working on the wrong team or what? So I don't think my answer is going to be very nicely wrapped in a bow. Um, I will say this, that I really like a lot of the tenets of classical liberalism. I think it's very, very appealing. I certainly advocate for individual liberties, which is one of the core principles. However, I do see that there seems to be uh, a dialectic that's been uh, created within, uh, I hate using this word because I think it's kind of been co-opted, but, and for their purposes. But really, I think there's been an Overton window that's been created of classical liberalism. And there's kind of the the two uh, oppositions, which are essentially like CIA, uh, you know, narratives. Like there's the CIA, uh, you know, libertarian type of uh, uh, messaging. And then there's the, you know, comp CIA types of Marxist you know, socialist, communist type messaging. Uh, but they're both within this framework of classical liberalism. And they're just kind of designed to be pit against each other. And I think that ultimately, any what I, and I've noticed this just even in the alternative sphere, is that people who go out too far outside that window, like you can kind of be on either side. You can be like pro-libertarian, but you're still within that uh, like kind of, CIA messaging or intelligence apparatus. Like I, I, I just use that as a broader because we'll just use that as like, loose kind of reference um, without making too many direct kind of, I, I think that could be a whole separate podcast. We could go through the actual messaging and uh, the crafting of those uh, uh, ideologies, but I, I think that when you go outside of that, then that's where you get really, really shadow banned and really censored. And uh, you get really kind of, uh, yeah, I, I think they tried to nullify you. And so my, what, what I, in terms of solutions, I don't know, like, there are a lot of aspects of libertarianism that I really do like. And I like the libertarian camp that is obviously countering the Marxist uh, you know, really just any totalitarian type of uh, ideology or system, you know, anything is going to lead in that direction. But I think ultimately there's really is this fallacy of authority, uh, of any kind of centralized authority where we as humans have diverted so much. I call it that we live in the middleman society and the middleman society has essentially, it's a middleman system that has essentially be, I, I think it's now hyper uh, you know, it, it's really just become like incredibly like magnified. Um, but I think it was created initially on a much smaller scale for to build this material dialectical uh, paradigm. And it was created to for yeah. consumerism to perpetuate capitalism. And this mm -hmm. is not, again, to denigrate capitalism. I think there are definitely some great you know, right. But like, and I'm not great at anything that isn't black and white. So it's hard for me. Like I did much better in business school than law school. So I, I, I like, that's a very comfortable place for me to be, but it's not always right. 
No, and I think that's exactly, I think most people are, uh, you know, they're linear thinkers. They'd like to deal in the black and white. It's very comfortable. It's like, it's, it's obvious. It's, it's, you know, it's like, it's math. Two plus two is four. Uh, but the reality is that so many, so much of human existence is outside of that realm. It's in the shades of gray. And I think that's really what they, they capitalize on. And I think that's actually what we're experiencing, you know, in what people might call fifth generation warfare or, you know, unrestricted warfare or just what, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I, I would argue you are. You mean foster secularism and in the, you know, worst sense of the word. Well, it, it, it's also that we're, 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 the battle is in the gray zone. It's not in, it's not a, a, a black and white kinetic uh, type of battle. It's in all the battles that we're really facing today are in the gray zone. And so it's not this uh, black and white, but what they do in order to perpetuate uh, these battles, you know, uh, really to perpetuate the dialectic, is to create black mm -hmm. and white. They create binaries. Oh, now we get to why this polarizing of society, whether you have like good people on both sides or not, is the problem. Like that is the setup. It doesn't matter. That is it. That is exactly the the setup. And what do I think the answer is? I mean, I uh, there are many facets. Sorry, the answer. Um, I don't. I don't claim to have like the actual answer, but I would say that I think definitely focusing on local. I think local communities, local resources, local networks. Uh, you know, building your own identities, your own. Uh, you know, advancement. And by doing that, I don't mean that in narcissistic capacity. I mean that, you know, starting with your own identity and building the families and communities around you. And actually, if you have a strong enough identity, you could have genuine, authentic interpersonal relationships, not just as part right. of a collective group. I really, I, you know, maybe an answer is, and it's the absolute hardest thing, and it's almost impossible right now, is to actually make and stay friends with people who have different ideological foundation, like people who like hold themselves liberal, like do it. I think it's not just to see friends, but it's to actually engage in real discourse outside of the labels because they really, they're, they're trying to create polarity and what they want to do, the way they succeed, this is how the dialectic progresses. The more uh, extreme the polarities are, this is the whole, where I was going with the whole Christian nationalism is they want to make it so extreme that you're going to have them become the reactionaries. And then ultimately what it does is it discredits Anybody on and the Christians. right. It yeah, exactly. So what you really want is, right. and so like, I understand what you're saying. I know you're talking about discourse and stuff, but I'm actually talking about just modeling good behavior so that they cannot call you yeah. a bad person. You know, it confuses people if they disagree with yeah, your ideology, I but you're the most trustworthy person they know. Like that confuses them. And I like that. I want, I want that. And come together. The more the more divided we are, the more they succeed, right? I always say they're the trinity that they worship is the the triple Ds. It's a they uh, it's deception. So they deceive, they distort, and that's part of how they manipulate perception in order to uh, socially engineer and culture create and manipulate and propag and propagandize the masses. And then the next one uh, is divide and conquer, and that's really the one we're talking about right now. So the the more we can avoid their traps of dividing us and we can actually come together. The st I actually think that the 
the less chance they have of winning because that's what they want. It, the more we divide, if we keep dividing, yeah. then they, they we divide and they conquer. And then the other one is destruction, which is, you know, like I would argue death is really- I know. They love death. They love death. Well, they destroy. They don't create anything, right? And if you go back to, we circle back to the Luciferian, uh, you know, ideology or theology, uh, they, they can only deceive, manipulate, or destroy. Right. So they destroy artifacts. They destroy history, they release viruses, they blow up buildings, they shoot school kids. Like that is, you're right, it's death, abortion. And even the releasing the viruses, it's, it's, an, it's synthesizing. And this is, again, the alchemical and hermetic principles, right? It's synthetic. They synthesize, so they merge the two. And this is, again, where the, the principles of the dialectic also, the ideas of the polarity are going to be synthesized, but it's synthetic. And when you bring up viruses, I mean, that's a lot of what they're doing when they create these, you know, you call it gain-of-function bioweapon. I, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But really it's still damaging viruses elements. are maybe entirely gain-of-function. Like, I'm not sure... I would argue they're uh, entirely synthetic, and we have a lot of patents to indicate that that's the case. Oh, yes. Well, that, that uh, yeah, we could do a whole thing on that. But let us end. This was going to be a three-part thing, so the next one is going to be about Tavistock. You're going to tell us everything about Tavistock, which I always think is like the psychological lab, the research for how to do it. Like it's all right, these this is the strategy. These are the, these are the shadow think the shadow mother think tank. <laughs> yes. So let's do Tavistock next time. And again, please tell people both about where they can find your work and also the the action that you're taking and how they can get involved. Yeah, which is uh, CauseFest stands for Creative Artists Uniting for the Sovereignty of Everyone. And the idea is about bringing everyone together. That's exactly what it's all about. Uh, that is my little small way of uh, trying to be part of the solution. And uh, it's a very wide tent, but I, I really firmly believe that there's no hope for humanity if we can't rally behind independent creative arts. And yes, they have to be good, but not, uh, you know, uh, culture created by intelligence agencies, really independent artists, and uh, of course, personal sovereignty. I think those are the two things that, uh, of all the things that we may disagree on, if we, we need to get behind those two things. So we're doing the Cause Fest, and that is, uh, you can go to rebelsforcause.com, find out more about that. And then, of course, follow me on any platform where you watch or listen to podcasts, and you can find them all at the courtneyturner.com. Courtney, C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y, T-U-R-N-E-R.com. Well, that's excellent. Um, and I do think that art is super powerful. It's one of the things that they have that, um, you know, that's why I love it when professionals are on our side, people of real talent, because yes. it's just worth so much. I mean, you could really change the world as a single person. That's why they take some of those guys out once in a while. No, not not your guys, but, you know, you see somebody, <laughs> an influencer just like blinks out. You're like, hmm. Could have been too powerful. So anyway, well, that's fantastic, Courtney. And um, just hang on, don't go away. Yeah, go ahead. I would argue, I'm just have this really quickly. Uh, the, the analogy I use is that because artists are the people who can color outside the lines and make it compelling, enticing, and potentially beautiful. And that's the most dangerous thing. So they want to either co-opt it so that they can use them to put forth their narratives or... They want to silence them because that's somebody who is going to be outside of the dialectical narratives that they put forth. 
It's somebody who's going to be able to think outside the box. I find that art or good poetry or whatever, it'll give voice to something that is being pushed down constantly by the culture around me. And so when I hear it, somebody saying, yes, that's exactly what I was feeling. It's so empowering. Nothing's more empowering than that. So that is dangerous. Uh, Okay, excellent. Thanks for your good work. Thanks for this great show. And hang on a second. Don't go. 